This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Adam Zamoyski was born in New York in 1949, but was raised and educated in England, where he currently lives. Behind all of that is a fascinating story. He was born in 1949 to aristocratic Polish parents, his father, Count Stefan Zamoyski, and his mother, the Princess Elizabeth. They came to the United States and largely lived in Britain because they had to flee Poland during World War II and in its aftermath. Their son, Adam Zamoyski, would later become the author of the best-selling history of that native land, of Poland. But Adam Zamoyski has also become an historian of note, writing across the field, especially of European history. Today, we're going to be talking about his new monumental biography of Napoleon, simply entitled Napoleon, A Life. Zamoyski was educated at the Downside School, and later he received his degrees from Queens College at Oxford University. He received the Master of Arts in Honors in 1974. Thereafter, he set about the task of being a writing historian, and that is exactly what he has done, writing well over a dozen influential books about European history and the figures behind that history. But he's also looked at the big ideas and the big themes. He has sought to integrate, to understand, to make connections as you look at civilization, culture, and history. And at least in my mind, to understand history as Adam Zamoyski approaches it is to understand that he is also Count Zamoyski. He is the son of a very aristocratic Polish family. He has walked the history that he writes about, and his family has been very much involved. Most of us do not have a similar kind of story, not writ large on the canvas of history. But in our own way, we cannot remove ourselves from the story. I'm looking forward to this conversation with historian Adam Zamoyski. Adam Zamoyski was kind to speak to us today from his home in London. Adam Zamoyski, welcome to Thinking in Public. I guess in one sense, anyone who writes a uh, major biography of Napoleon has to explain why. So I'll just start there. Why this massive, almost 700-page biography of Napoleon published in the year 2018, 2019? Um, well, you may well ask why. I um, At first, when it was suggested to me, I, I um, balked at the idea, and I had no wish to write it at all. Um, but I was persuaded to do it. Um, and as usually happens with these um, subjects, which you think have been covered by thousands of people before, uh, you pick up a few biographies um, that have been written about him, and you realize, or books that have been written on the subject, and you realize that they, uh, they, they miss a lot of the point. Uh, and suddenly one gets, I find I get this urge to say, well, hang on, look, I've got to get this. This is nonsense. I've got to, I've got to put this straight, um, or at least get to the bottom of this. Um, and actually, by the way, mine, although you say it's massive, it's a great deal shorter than most. Well, in that sense, it is. But on the other hand, it is a major biography. The title, indeed, is Napoleon, A Life. And I really, I really was struck by the way you began in your preface when you said, A Polish home, English schools, and holidays with French cousins exposed me from an early age to violently conflicting visions of Napoleon 
as godlike genius, romantic, avatar, evil monster, or just nasty little dictator. Then you said, in this crossfire of fantasy and prejudice, I developed an empathy with each of these views without being able to agree with any of them. By the time I read uh, your entire book, I I felt like I was in the same place. Uh, I had empathy for every one of those descriptions and uh, was convinced of none of them. Um, and that, that is, that is um, I'm very pleased to hear that, because that is what every historian would like to hear. Um, I, I didn't, a historian should never take sides. Uh, I don't think it's a historian's duty to, to be a, a polemicist. Um, and, um, but I think that a good historian should be able to empathize and make his reader empathize in the sense that, you know, whoever you're reading about, um, you know, whether it's a a wonderful man or a monster, even if you're um, reading about Hitler or Stalin, you, you know, the only reason to read about them is to try and find out what on earth made these people tick? What, what were they trying to do? You know, why did these do these things? Um, because just saying, you know, they did it because they were nasty brutes is, is not good enough. Because uh, human beings all have the capacity, we all have the capacity to be nasty brutes and monsters. Um, but we also have a, an infinite capacity for good. And, um, and uh, you know, a biography must try and explore and make things understandable and that means putting yourself and the reader in the man or the woman's um the protagonist's uh, shoes and um and if if that's what you felt at the end of it then um i <laughs> i hope i was successful well i i will credit you for being so in this case and uh, i, I want to tell you that the thing i appreciated most about uh, your biography was what it told me about Napoleon that I I didn't know before, given even more massive biographies. And I do think you tried to get into the inner man. But before getting to that for just a moment, I want to say that I think a pattern in the the histories of of great men uh, throughout history is that the effort is made to present their lives before that moment of greatness as a series of, of pointers towards inevitability. By the time I was about a third of the way through your biography, I was convinced that Napoleon could have turned out to be a great and powerful man, or he could have turned out to have been someone of whom there would be virtually no memory. There was no inevitability in uh, in, in the narrative as I read it. Absolutely. And I think this is, again, this is terribly important. People do write, um, unfortunately, people write with hindsight. And, you know, very often uh, people write with a, well, they write what they were taught at school. Um, Very few people can really step back and and get themselves out of, you know, as it were, get up onto a cloud and look down uh, dispassionately at things. And and here the... um, you know, as, as as I made clear in my in my preface, um, I was incredibly fortunate, and and that's been my greatest um, asset, I think, as a historian, is that I come from a mixture of cultures. Um, 
and uh, I, I can I can see um, I can see both sides of the coin. And the fact is that at any point, as you say, Napoleon could have um, just got nowhere. Um, and indeed, he could have, um, you know, if, if, if the British after Waterloo had allowed him to settle in a cottage in the English countryside, as he asked them to, um, <laughs> he would have finished his days as a, you know, what we call in this country a pub bore. You know, somebody who sits around yes. endlessly telling everybody how wonderful he is and expanding his own views on everything. And he would have been forgotten. The fact that they turned his imprisonment um, into a kind of martyrdom um, uh, it, you know, it glorified him and elevated him to a position way above it. So, you know, nothing is inevitable. Um, and, uh, you know, if he'd been killed at Waterloo, it would have been different. Um, if he'd died, you know, five years earlier or um, eight years earlier, he'd be remembered as a remarkable general and as, as the restorer of France, but nothing much more. Um, and the other thing about biographers is that People like fairy tales. And there was a review of my book in the London Times um, by a, a gentleman who said how wonderful that at last somebody stripped off all the stuff about Napoleon and shown what an average man he was. And the French are going to hate this book because it's honest and all this. And it points out that he's not very good at this and he wasn't that good at that. And then at the end of the review, he says, but you know what? I actually rather missed, I rather missed the whole um, sense of his greatness. And uh, <laughs> you know, as an honest historian, yes. you can't win. <laughs> no, I understand that. But it is also a quandary uh, that, that we're stuck with, uh, so to speak, where you have a man who you convince the reader is in many ways just an ordinary man. But you did write a 700-page biography of him. Uh, Andrew Roberts wrote uh, a, a, another massive biography just a couple of years earlier entitled Napoleon the Great. Uh, we speak of the Napoleonic age. Uh, the Code Napoleon is, is still a constant reference point in French law and also, for that matter, in the state of Louisiana here in the United States. And so there's more to the man, and uh, that means we have to look at his age as well. But uh, one of the things I appreciate about the way you tell the story is that uh, I think you really do help to point to the family dynamic uh, in a way that many others have not. And it's really a, a, a rather uh, sad tale, but Napoleon was driven by a quest for glory, and uh, you've convinced me that a part of that came to him quite young because he wanted to uh, overcome, basically, the reputation of his own father there in Corsica. Yes. Um, his father was a terrible social climber, and um, the family was always struggling because there was never enough money around. Um, they were... It was a very tight, tight little town, Ayacho, uh, where he grew up, um, where everybody was 
you know, jockeying for survival and pecking order in a very tight, smelly place. And so <laughs> there was always a question of onwards and upwards or downwards. You know, you couldn't you couldn't sort of stand still. Um, not to mention the fact that it was a society in which you were more than likely to get knifed in the back if you didn't watch out for yourself. So there, were, there was that. Um, and there was that whole Mediterranean cult of the family and the clan and sticking together. And, and that did, did drive him on. Uh, but again, the, the more important than that, or equally important, is the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. And for this, you have to look at the literature of the times, at you know what these people, these young boys, um, read and what he read. He was a tremendous reader of both technical and historical books, but he also loved literature. And he was absolutely entranced um, uh, by the great literature of the French Grand Siècle, by Racine and Corneille's dramas, um, but also by by um, the poems of of the fake Scottish bard Ossian, which inspired a sense of you know men living. Uh, living moments that were like like moments taken from Greek mythology, uh, which um, it was a literature that, that rarely um, kind of equated hu- human situations with those of the gods. And so there was always this sense of, of the superhuman um, and attaining a kind of a, a fulfillment. I suppose it's it's it was the the laicized, the secular um, version of the old Christian uh, concept of um, human sacrifice and sanctification, um, and and ultimately. Um, giving oneself and, and achieving sanctity through, um, through practice of the faith. Um, but here it was achieving a sort of higher state of achievement, of fulfillment, um, through great action. And it wasn't just Napoleon who was inspired by this. So many uh, young people of his age were. They thought they were creating a new world. It was, an, it was a sort of pseudo-Christianity they were, they were implementing. I want to follow through on that thought uh, more in just a moment, but looking just at the early Napoleon, I'm struck by the fact that as a basically nine-year-old boy, he ends up by his father's political uh, ingenuity uh, in a prominent military school that will eventually train the French military elite and Napoleon really takes to it. That, that, that's something I really uh, felt from uh, the reading your narrative. Uh, Napoleon really takes to it. He takes to the mathematics. He takes to the military science. He, he takes to it all. And so even in a nine-year-old, it appears that, that he begins to think of himself as the general. And eventually he makes himself into one. Yes, of course, originally... Um, it, there had been 
talk of him going into the Navy. Um, and that held out um, a, a great allure because it meant that, you know, because if you were a soldier in peacetime, all you did was sit around in a garrison town um, doing a bit of drill. Whereas in the Navy in peacetime, you sailed around the world and you did things and you discovered things and you learned things. And it required uh, mathematical skills and, um, and calculation. So he was, he was very interested in that. Um, so he, he wasn't necessarily... I, I, you know, I'm not sure that at that age he wanted to be the great leader of men. I think he wanted to get on and do things. I think he wanted to find out about things. He, he read about military campaigns and military history, but he also read about lots of other kinds of, um, uh, of, of, of nonfiction books. Um, he um, he le- read about the governments of different countries. He read about philosophy. He he read very very widely about different cultures, about geography. So he he was at that stage, I think, not determined to become a, a great leader of men. I think he was a he was he wanted to do things. He was inquisitive. He was um, intellectually inquisitive and, and um, intellectually ambitious and, and wanted to do things. And it was gradually, uh, the more he came into contact with other people, he realized that actually he was a lot cleverer than most of them. And, you know, and that spurred him on because he began to really um, despise an awful lot of people who were supposedly his elders and betters. I want to talk about Napoleon as military leader because that's where there is so much interest uh, even amongst our contemporaries. And you convince the reader that Napoleon had a certain kind of military genius. He lacked another kind of military genius, and that becomes a part of the timeline of the story. He appears to be invincible, or almost so, uh, for decades, and then he turns out not to be invincible at all. If I could summarize your argument, it's that uh, early on, Napoleon earned the loyalty of his troops and eventually the loyalty of, of others by winning these decisive victories. And he did so with a, a very keen mind on military strategy, making sure his forces were in just the right place at just the right time with just the right strategy. And uh, that worked until it didn't. But if I could summarize, I want to test. Uh, I want to test this with you. It appears that one of your major arguments is that he was rather tremendous at conquering territory, but not very good at defending it. Um, I'm not sure that's true because actually, in 1814, when he hardly had any troops left, he. Um, and defending France, he was absolutely brilliant. And had he had uh, another twenty, thirty thousand more men, um, he would probably have defeated the Allies. Um, but no, I think that the, the fundamental thing is, I think that the, the real problem is that he wasn't a great strategist. He was a great tactician. And there's a fundamental difference between tactics and strategy. And what he was very good at, well, first of all, he studied the terrain and the conditions. So he had a very 
clear idea of um, where his armies were, where his men were, and where the enemy was. And he also knew where he could retreat and where he could advance, i.e. where there were roads, where there were bridges, where you could cross a river, ford it or whatever, um, which passes were, were you could get guns over and which you couldn't, um, and so on. And but at the same time, he also had a clear idea of, of where the enemy could advance and where the enemy could retreat. And so he would very quickly spot that the, his adversary, the enemy, had suddenly got themselves up a valley um, with an exposed rear, and he would com- move incredibly quickly, rearranging his own forces, to go and hit them right in that exposed place and trap them and completely destroy them. Um, and he was always looking out for the enemy's mistakes and very quick to take advantage. And that served him extremely well um, when essentially it was his greatest um, victories, the spectacular ones, um, were when he was actually being attacked uh, in Italy in right. 1796. Um, he was... Um, he was continually being okay. He he moved into Italy and knocked knocked the, the enemy back. But then, having cleared the Austrians out of Italy, they five times they sent armies in to defeat him, and they were always superior to him. And he just he would kind of punch right and left and outmaneuver them brilliantly, and possibly his greatest military victory at Austerlitz. Again, he was outnumbered. And what he did was he he pulled back and he led the enemy on, making them believe that he had an exposed wing. And he made them attack him, and then he destroyed them. So he was very good at those sorts of tactics. But what was his undoing was... Um, strategy uh, or lack of because he didn't have in the end he, he never had one single ally uh, he kept changing alliances uh, and he would push people even allies into impossible positions uh, which inevitably turned them into into enemies and in the end he ran out of allies. Everybody was against him. And wherever he looked, um, everybody had turned against him. So um, he, he, his great, um, uh, possibly his, well, what his downfall was because he didn't have a long-term uh, political strategy. And indeed, in 1815, uh, if he had stayed in Paris and allowed the Allies to invade again, he he might well have managed to um, bloody their nose to the extent that they would then be forced to allow him to remain on the throne. But by marching out, again, that was a strategic mistake, uh, although it was tactically sensible. So... Uh, yeah. he, you know that that's really also and with age he got lazy 
and he had huge armies, and he, he just thought that his fame and his reputation would do the rest. Uh, and that stopped being the case. You do begin to feel at one point the um, morale, the esprit de corps of the French troops beginning to dissipate. And so long as Napoleon was seen as the great conqueror, seeing as almost invincible or eventually invincible, he had that, that great loyalty. But you do begin, especially after 1812, to see that uh, begin to dissipate. But Napoleon is, is famous for so many things other than war. And uh, you give uh, much of this due in, in the book. And I, I want to go back to a comment you made earlier. And I'll have to make reference to my favorite of your books, and uh, that is Holy Madness, Romantics, Patriots, and Revolutionaries, 1776 to 1871. That's because, my favorite, too. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I will tell you that as a theologian and a historical theologian, I, I, I found it the most fascinating of your works. You, you begin by looking at the Romantic Age and speaking of the extent to which in the French Revolution there was a secularization that took place. Uh, dramatically uh, addressed it, replacing the doctrine of original sin with a, a very different understanding of humanity. I think your first chapter was entitled Our Lord Mankind, this uh, arrival of enlightenment man. And uh, you convinced me in your uh, biography, Napoleon, that Napoleon was very much himself a son of the enlightenment and self-consciously so. And I think that's something new that you bring to this biography that's a very important part of the picture. Yes, he was undoubtedly a child of the Enlightenment, um, and he was, and, and the Enlightenment spoke to him because he was above all a very pragmatic and sensible man, a very practical man, and that's why he was such a great nation builder, state builder, because he he he, he picked up the mess left behind by the revolution, and instead of being dogmatic and too theoretical. You know, he had this um, this attitude is, no, you know, people like this, and therefore they must have this. Um, forget about the theory, and that's that. For instance, you know, the, the, the whole, the revolution had swept away, as you know, um, uh, swept the practice of religion, um, in this case Catholicism, out of public life. And he realized that actually most of the population of France, the simple people in France, were attached to their old religion, uh, very often not for spiritual reasons, but it was their it was their cultural it was the cultural landscape in which they'd grown up. They believed in in a god. They believed in in going to church. They 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 lived by the calendar of the church and 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 the calendar of the saints. And so he brought all that back against to the fury of almost all the other revolutionaries for whom it was an article of faith of the revolution to have swept aside all that. And most of his generals were furious with him. But he realized that, no, you know, most of the people want it, and therefore they must have it, although he, he wasn't a, a believer himself. So he was a tremendously practical man, and everything he did, you know, there was a logic to it. At the same time, he was also a child of the first ripples of romanticism, of the romantic movement. And he loved, um, he 
loved the the early romantic novels, such as Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther or uh, Bernardin de Saint-Pierre's Paul et Virginie, which he kept rereading. And so he, he was quite sort of sentimental and um, he, he had a romantic side to him. Um, and of course, Ossian as well, which is a, an early um, pre um, text. So um, he, uh, he was a curious mixture, but this allowed him to, uh, to achieve what was his greatest achievement, which was to rebuild, out of the mess left by France, rebuild an intelligent, functioning, rational uh, French state, which incorporated a great deal of traditional French law and institutions going back over the centuries, which also included the reinstatement of the Catholic Church, um, but which also included what all the best things that had come out of the revolution. And so it was a tremendously pragmatic thing, and that's why it has survived, and that's why um, the Code Napoleon is still there, and indeed France and a great many Western states um, still function along uh, those lines. One of the interesting realizations in reading about Napoleon is that virtually everyone seems to have a piece of him. Every biographer seems to have an approach, but his life and his legacy are such huge historical questions that the books actually begin to argue with one another. But as we see even in this book, arguments emerge within the book. That's because, I guess you'd have to say, arguments emerge within the man. In your book, uh, Holy Madness, you go to uh, tremendous uh, pains, uh, detail, to uh, demonstrate the extent to which the Enlightenment uh, philosophers, and, and more than that, the people who had to run the governments and shape the civilizations, actually just went back to the Christian symbolism and uh, took out the Christianity and put in a, a, a new secular meaning. But Napoleon seems to have gone beyond that. At one point, uh, it's on page 299 of your biography, he uh, asked the question, how can one have order in a state without religion? And you also, as a subtext in, in your book, make clear that Napoleon was horribly offended by the licentiousness, the sexual licentiousness that, uh, that followed the terror. And uh, he really did see, uh, apparently, uh, Christian morality as necessary for France, if not the supernatural claims of Christianity itself. Yes, that's perfectly true. I think there are a number of things here. Um, first of all, he, he, was, he was a prig, um, and I think, um, I wonder whether he wasn't sort of sexually quite complicated. Um, he certainly, um, he, he was very... He wasn't very good in bed, so to speak. Um, he, and he found women. Um, he, 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 he found women a sort of problem because, on the one hand, he'd been dominated by a strong mother, and and he he valued the role of women as most European. I mean, sort of Mediterranean Europeans value, you know, the the, the great sort of southern. 
um, idea of woman as the, as the nurturer and the life giver. At the same time, he, he felt that they were a nuisance and that they complicated life. Um, and the other aspect of him is that's most important to realize he was a bit of a control freak. Um, he liked everything to be just so and kept in order. And he was always trying to, you know, he'd get very cross if things were out of place or if too much money had been spent on candles or coffee at at the Tuileries Palace. Um, And what he didn't like about sexual license was that it was disorderly and it might lead to all sorts of... um, um, you know, he, he, it just upset, you know, it had a potential for being uh, disturbing the social order. Um, he had the same feelings about homosexuality, um, although he, 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 he turned a blind eye um, to, to, um, to it with time. I mean, he, one of his greatest um, uh, collaborators, the, the Arch-Chancellor, Cambacérès was um, openly gay and always had been, but Napoleon at one stage forced him to go and visit a, a prominent female prostitute um, rather publicly at least once a week to try and make people think that he wasn't that he wasn't gay. You know, there was this extraordinary um, sense that that order was terribly important to keep society together. Uh, and that was partly um, because he had seen terrible disorder as a young man during the revolution. He'd seen mobs baying for blood um, and the near collapse of, 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 of a civilized society. So he, um, he did value the church, the law, the institutions, and the family, and the, as he, what he saw as the proper um, ordering of society, as as um, the um, the kind of the building blocks of that. Well, you present to Napoleon as such a complicated figure. He definitely abhors atheism and uh, believes that uh, a proper religion, as he defined it, would be a vaccine for the imagination. It would give uh, legitimacy uh, to, uh, to, the, to the authorities and to hierarchy. And, uh, and, and then you, you went on just now to talk about the family. Uh, in, in the Code Napoleon, he very clearly establishes the family as the most basic unit of French society. I think this is something that's often overlooked, but frankly, it's showing up in the headlines right now in, in some of the, uh, the, the civil debates in France with the distinction between urban France and rural France right now in, in 2019. Uh, and it, it points to the fact that Napoleon's longest legacy might well be this code and the culture that it produced. Yes, yes. I think, um, again, when you're, his, um, his, his idea that, that religion was um, a, a, a vaccine, um, it's, it's the equivalent of, you know, the, there's the British saying is when people stop believing in God, they start believing in something a great deal worse. <laughs> um, and so he firmly believed that that um, the Christian faith was um, the most satisfactory for human organization, if only from a purely practical point of view. Um, and 
and absolutely the family, he saw that as central, partly because he came from, as I keep stressing, this very family-based um, Mediterranean culture, um, but partly because he saw that as, as the, the, the fundamental unit um, of society uh, and and the fundamental unit of control. And his, and on the one hand, in the Code Napoleon, he very much puts women in the second place, and the the, the, father, the, the man of the family um, is, has to be in charge of the money, and he has to he decides whom his wife can see and whom she can't see, and so on. And that's partly because of his own experience of having been um, cheated on by Josephine. Um, but also, uh, he's very actually understanding of um, of women. And for instance, he he does facilitate divorce um, if if marriages have broken down irretrievably. Um, but also there's this very interesting thing that he turns um, adoption into a sort of a sacrament. Uh, so on, the idea was that if, you, if somebody adopted a child, it wasn't just, okay, I'm going to look after them and bring them up as my own. There was a whole um, process that turned this child into... Uh, you know, it was a bit like a wedding. It had to be a a, um, a semi-religious uh, act, so this child could really feel that they had become part of the family. Um, so it's quite interesting. He also, um, in his in the educational system in the university, uh, which was to govern the entire educational system in France. He originally saw teachers as sort of lay monks who should remain um, unmarried uh, for a number of years while being teachers and only marry once they had reached a certain maturity and then they should marry. Um, and so as to give them the gravitas and prevent them from then um, seducing their charges or whatever. So uh, he, his, his sense of the religious um, as, as, as part, as a useful and constructive cement for social organization um, did reach very, very far. Well, and his system of public education did as well, uh, and it was basically secular, as you say. And but but as you have made the argument in your previous works, secular infused with basically uh, sacred uh, authority by symbolism and by the the almost uh, monastic role of the teachers. Uh, in your book, you point out that uh, Napoleon actually said public education can and must be a very powerful motor in our political system. And uh, he said that the Department of Public Education is nothing less than the direction of minds by intelligence. There's a sense in which he sought to think through the entire culture. I, that, that's still a surprise to me. When you talk about Napoleon, you're not just talking about a general or a, an, an overly ambitious, uh, you know, monomaniac. Uh, you, you're looking at someone who really was concerned with 
almost every dimension of society. Yes, but you're also looking at someone who turned up at the right moment when a very, very significant proportion of the national elite knew that it wanted to create a sensible and orderly state, but just couldn't get their act together. And these people just needed somebody who could galvanize the thing and just get on with it. Mm. And uh, um, the, the, one of the, the directors whom he overthrew, uh, C.S., you know, famously, he wanted to lead a coup, but he said he needed a saber, he needed a general, somebody who, who had the determination to carry things through. And so, in a sense, almost everything Napoleon did, yes, he did it, but he did it almost as somebody surfing a wave. And he was creating things that the, the French nation, you could say, or certainly the, 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 the outstanding elites of the French nation wanted to create, but just couldn't stop discussing. And uh, in, in his, the sessions of his um, Council of State, uh, in which he forged all these institutions, he, you know, he almost sort of banged heads together. He'd sit there saying, come on, um, tell me what you think. And he'd, he'd question people, and they'd all discuss and discuss. And he would pick out the salient points that everybody had made, um, evaluate them and say, well, look, these are the arguments. You've put this argument, you've put this argument, but I think this is the way through. Does everybody agree? And they'd suddenly say, hey, that's, that's quite good. And they'd say, right. And, and off it went. So he was a catalyst. Um, and so, yes, he achieved great things, but it wasn't like he turned up and just achieved them himself. Everything from the Code Napoleon onwards was he was the the editor in a way. He was the, the, the catalyst and the editor. So what does it say that when we refer to this era in Europe, especially in France, we can't do so without calling it Napoleonic? How does it come to this that Napoleon is uh, is such a dominant figure in our imagination today? You really explain that in the closing paragraph of your book when you talk about Napoleon's final victory. And I'll let you put it in your own words, but it's a quite convincing argument. Yes. Well, um, the, 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 the point about Napoleon was that he was an arch propagandist. He needed propaganda originally um, to cover his back. Um, he uh, then found that he needed it to keep himself in power. And both through word and, and image, he created uh, such a grand construct in people's imaginations. The whole state with which he was bound up, the, the, the style, the, the uniforms, the, the, the whole uh, thing, he had created something absolutely um, astonishing. And, um, but a lot of the time he was still insecure. He was, he was riven by insecurities and he never really knew when to stop. 
because he was afraid that if he stopped, people would stop respecting him. And it was really only after he he fell and he was um, uh, a prisoner uh, that he started actually creating his his ultimate. Um, his ultimate image, which was no longer designed so much to um, cover his back as to project his image for the future, to turn himself into a kind of um, almost superhuman, um, indeed superhuman genius, and to do it in such a way that um, when it was taken up by the Romantic um, movement... Yes, in your words, you said he, uh, he he came to this vision of himself as Napoleon, the godlike genius who misunderstood, betrayed, and martyred by lesser men, would triumph over death and live on to haunt the imagination and inspire future generations. He had begun a new life as a myth. Yes, and that's what we, you know, that is what um, the, the uh, English title, uh, the title of the English edition uh, of my book is Napoleon, the man behind the myth, because that was exactly what I was trying to find, um, how this extraordinary man, uh, who in many ways was very ordinary, but did have some great talents. But as, you, as I point out, none of those talents on its own permitted him to achieve what he achieved, but how he managed partly through, through manipulation of men, images, and, and, and facts, to turn, to A, create an extraordinary epos, um, and B, to then um, turn that into, into a myth which, which haunts us and which everybody loves, because it is, you know, I come back to this thing, it is like a huge fairy tale. It's people love reading about Napoleon. People love looking at Napoleonic uniforms. Um, people are um, just do find the glory of it, um, or the imagined glory of it, um, absolutely um, spellbinding. And he knew how to do that. He was a very, very able and clever manipulator. I wonder if I might ask you a, a more personal question. You come from an aristocratic uh, Polish family. Uh, you were born in the United States, but educated uh, in Britain, and uh, I think of you as British. And uh, yet you're connected to so many of these stories yourself. And given Napoleon and Poland, how much of this w- was a, a matter of personal interest to you? And, uh, and, and how does that play out in, in your work as an historian? Um, in 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 the case of um, Napoleon and Poland, um, <laughs> of course, it's another perfect thing. Is the Poles have traditionally since um, the since the, the beginning of the nineteenth century, and they love Napoleon. They still do. They refuse to believe. They don't want to believe. Um, in the truth, which was that he had absolutely no plans for them. He just used them as cannon fodder. Um, uh, they, the Poles loved to convince themselves that Napoleon loved them and was going to recreate a free Poland, which is a complete and utter nonsense. 
Mm. <laughs> but this is a perfect example how Napoleon is a vehicle for wishful thinking. And for in the 19th century, you see, Napoleon was a wonderful myth for for defeated causes because the you know Poland had been defeated and taken apart, and the greatest of all men had been brought down by lesser people by a combination of English shopkeepers and uh, Russians and Austrians. And Poland had been taken apart by the nasty Russians, Prussians and Austrians. And so there was a, a great comfort zone there, that, you know, <laughs> that the Poles, you know, had um, also shared in his kind of martyrdom and mm. his glory. And again, Poland would rise again, just as he would, and so on. Um, these these things, uh, these semi-religious feelings get, get um, mixed in with these. And I was uh, brought up quite sensibly on this thing, but it was that kind of mythology was there in the background. And uh, certainly in our... our um, there were prints of Prince Poniatowski's death and of um, Polish lancers doing heroic things and um, so on. So uh, I, you know, I, I, I grew up with this thing, but uh, um, at the same time, I can see the ridiculous aspect of it. And, and that's why, indeed, I opened the book with, with a scene which is, frankly, almost farcical. <laughs> yes, Yes, and 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 probably even more to your eyes than to the uh, the imaginations of of your readers. I, I want to ask you a forward focused question: uh, What's the next project, or, or uh, what interest is driving you now? Once you conclude this massive project on Napoleon, uh, what what would be the next historical interest? Um, I really don't know at the moment. I'm feeling um, quite. Um, tired by Napoleon because I had to do it to a to a deadline and um and it did so I had to to really uh, concentrate very much on the book all the time and I now feel I need a period of reflection um I would like to go back to a subject that's more uh, maybe more universal, a bit like, or at least wider ranging. I don't like covering subjects that other people have written. Um, as I said, you know, my favourite book was Holy Madness. I I loved researching that and writing that, and and uh, I also loved my other book, Phantom Terror, yes. um, which again spans cultures. You see, the trouble is that most historians write their little history of their own little backyard, and they don't look over the fence. And life isn't like that, and history isn't like that. Everybody's in con- interconnected. I love those connections, uh, because they make history live, and they make, uh, um, you know, it's much more interesting, because you find then that um, art, literature, and and everything is is much more interconnected around the world, and um, so um, I would like to to uh, go back to a subject that at least spans of, um, and and I like uh, books that deal with ideas. Well, and uh, that's why I enthusiastically recommend your book Holy Madness, as well as your new biography uh, on Napoleon. And uh, uh, by the way, I really enjoyed your Intelligence Squared debate with uh, Andrew Roberts, with whom I've also had a couple of these conversations about Napoleon. Uh, once again, it's, it's 
fascinating and very pleasing to me that an argument amongst historians about a man long dead would draw a major crowd in London even today. There's something still yeah. satisfying about that. Yes. yes, it was rather amazing, I must say. And, um, and Andrew, of course, is a friend of mine and is a very, very good man. I don't agree with his, um, I think he over-eggs the whole thing of uh, Napoleon, and I don't think he really understands it. I think he is very much, um, he loves all the, the, the military stuff and, um, and is in awe of, of well, Napoleon the Great, that says it all in his title. <laughs> um, but uh, but he's, um, he's a good historian and he's a, a very dear man. So um, our debate was we we agreed to have a bit of a go at each other because that's what um, what debate is about. Well, and it made it fun to watch. It was uh, it was a genuine exchange of ideas, and clearly amongst uh, 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 and and clearly among friends, uh, yeah. or at least friendly historians, in a, in a lively debate. And who could ask for something better than that? Uh, as as we think about the relevance of history and uh, our lives today. Adam Zamoyski, thank you so much for joining me today for Thinking in Public. It was a pleasure. I really did enjoy that conversation with Adam Zamoyski. When you think about contemporary historical debates, over the course of the last several decades, there has been an ideological retreat from the so-called great man theory of history. The fact that history is basically told through the stories of the great men and increasingly great women who helped shape that story. But even as the Academy tells us the great man theory of history is over, the book sale charts tell us a very different story. When you have a major biography of someone like Napoleon, or for that matter, at least two massive biographies in just the course of the last two to three years— And you see that both of them become bestsellers. Well, that tells you something about the fact that the great man theory of history simply won't die. And that is because these individuals seize our imagination. And that is certainly the case of Napoleon. But it's a case different for Americans than those who are in either the United Kingdom or on the European continent. For Americans, Napoleon's an interesting figure way over there across an ocean. His relationship with the United States was not non-existent after all. We're talking about the Louisiana Purchase, and we're talking about, at one point in Napoleon's reign, the Emperor Napoleon having to make a decision about exactly how important he understood French territories and potential French colonies to be in North America. But the fact is that if you are European, and especially if you are British or you are Russian, the very name Napoleon brings a visceral response. Approaching that as an historian in a more analytical way requires a certain kind of emotional discipline, but at the same time, there is no way a story with the drama and the importance of Napoleon can be told without emotion. But the mark of a truly great biography is that by reading it, a couple of things happen. One is you come to understand not only the man but the world in a better and more thoughtful way. And the second development is likened to the first. You begin to enter into an argument, sometimes an argument with other books and other authors, other interpretations of the very same events and individuals. Sometimes it turns out to be an argument within yourself. Sometimes that is also somewhat emotional. Do I like this individual or do I find him repulsive? In reality, it's the Christian worldview that explains why in a figure so complicated as Napoleon, At turns, we respond with admiration and then with revulsion. 
our emotional response, that moral reading that is inevitably personal, it changes sometimes page by page. And that's what makes the turning of the page so fascinating. One thing's for certain, by the time you reach the end of a biography like this, you come to understand that this was a very important life. In its own way, every life is important, but not every life gets covered in a biography so significant as this. Many thanks again to my guest, Adam Zamoyski, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than a hundred of these conversations at albertmuller.com under Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.